You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Hey, who's had the chance to go to the Grand Canyon over in the United States? It is a crazy, crazy place, isn't it? We've got a few here, so they're going to understand what I'm talking about in a second. You see, when I was there, something happened that I didn't quite expect. And that was when I walked to the lookout uh, that was there at the main visitor center, I got to the edge of this thing, and it's something like 5,000 feet. I don't know, look it up in Wikipedia during the message. Uh, 5,000 feet to, from the surface of where I was standing down to the bottom of the canyon itself. And so when I was there, the thing was so huge and so vast uh, that looking at this thing, it almost felt two-dimensional. That is, it was so massive and it was so incredible that it was almost beyond my brain and my eyes' ability to comprehend what I was really looking at. And so I lost uh, some of that depth of the Grand Canyon just by standing there looking at it. Uh, look, here's where I'm going. The cross, the cross of Jesus Christ is the Grand Canyon of all theology in the Bible. That is that there is a grandness, there is a scope, there is a depth to this thing. That the reality is, we, as we come into this, in this new series, An Unconventional Freedom, uh, we run the risk that we stand on the edge of the lookout and it becomes two-dimensional to us. In fact, I know it already happened last week for us because we had a bizarre phenomenon. Maybe it goes on a little bit more than I think, but, but uh, I, had a number of, I had a number of people come up to me and say midway through the week, which was good for my self-esteem, but they were saying, Sam, you know, last Sunday's message, what the heck were you on? <laughs> I was just, I was, yeah, I was dazed, I was confused, but by the time, yeah, but by the time we got through the study, I was like, man, this clicks. And then on the other hand, there were other people who were taken away by the beauty and the wonder and the depth of the, the other people saying, man, that, 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 that message was on fire. And I'm thinking, how is it possible that we can have people sitting either sides of this auditorium? Some are thinking this is the best thing they've ever heard. Other people think that I'm, you know, I'm, I've gone half crazy or having a really bad week. <laughs> Look, I dare to believe it's because of the depth of what we're looking at, guys. That each week that we move into this series in Unconventional Freedom, we will begin to traverse uh, from the lookout down into the depths of what the cross really means. And so tonight, uh, we look at how the cross, and we'll continue to look at how the cross is the most nuanced response, uh, the most nuanced answer to the world's question of what is true freedom. That freedom is not just the absence of restrictions, but finding the right restrictions and submitting yourselves to them, which is what we discovered last week. We'll continue to find that tonight. And that we will look that, at that the cross is not just a freedom from, but it's a freedom for. That last week we saw that the cross was a freedom from the world, from other people's opinions, uh, from other people's status and achievements. Uh, you can be crucified to that, says Paul in Galatians. It's a freedom from the world. And tonight we see that it, it is the solution to one of what we call the big five. We need to do a series on this, but the big five in Christianity, the big five problems that you're going to need to get Christianity to answer for you, the problem of things like the problem of meaning and the problem of death and the problem of knowledge and the problem of suffering. But most of all, we see tonight that the cross will answer for us the problem of guilt. What do we do with the problem of guilt? 
And we'll see how the cross sets us free from that. So if you want to read with me, we're going to read from Romans 5, verses 1 to 2, and then from verses 6 through to 9. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Verse 6, you see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? I'm I'm at a bit of a loss because uh, it was the season finale last week of uh, a new hit television series called Suits. I don't know if we've got any Suits fans in the building, but I uh, I'm a sucker for Suits. I've been loving watching the relationship develop between Mike and Harvey, but particularly uh, the the character of this young guy called Mike Ross, because Mike Ross sums up what guilt is in a nutshell. Basically, the story is that uh, Mike is this hotshot lawyer that is working for a top-tier law firm in New York, and there's only one problem. Mike never went to law school. He was a genius, and so he's able to memorize books, uh, and so therefore he memorized all the various exams that were necessary and all the various laws that were necessary, and by some fluke, he managed to stumble into an interview with a hotshot lawyer from a top-tier firm who decided to hire him anyway, in spite of the fact that he had forged a degree from Harvard University, and the entire time of his career, we're now into season three, so it's been three seasons of this for poor Mike, the whole time in his career, he's been living under the pressure and the anxiety of guilt. And it's guilt in two ways, guilt in the way that we are to define guilt, that there was a factual guilt, and most importantly, the tension of the series works because it's always dealing with his feelings of guilt. You see, there's a factual guilt. He never went to Harvard, and he's not really a lawyer. And the whole tension of the series is centered around the fact that at any time, he can be brought before a judge, and someone can account for this factual guilt, and so there's always the feelings of guilt. And that's what builds the tension in this series throughout all of it. Wouldn't you agree that's how we could define what guilt is? And that's when we first look at what the problem of guilt is in the world. We have to realize that part of the problem with guilt is, as I've heard uh, someone explain it, that the f- guilt is, is where the, the feeling of guilt, uh, guilt is the feeling that guilt is more than just a feeling. Guilt is the feeling that Guilt is more than just a feeling. Are you with me? That there's a factual basis. Some of you are already saying, what is Sam on tonight? I can see it. You're just not getting the depth of the cross yet. Trust me. Uh, True guilt is the feeling that that guilt's more than just a feeling. You see, here's here's the interesting dynamic. For the average Sydney sider, you don't have to be a Christian. I'm talking about the average Sydney sider, the non-believer. You know, they are free, as we looked at last week, to construct their own reality and to construct their own morality and to construct their own standards and to construct their own way of life and to set all these things, construct their own sense of right and wrong. And yet, why is it that still so many of our friends, particularly those that are not believers, feel guilty? Biblically, 
the Bible would say in verse 1, it's because outside of the cross, there isn't a peace with God. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have a peace with God, a shalom, a wholeness with God. And so what it's saying outside of the cross, there will always be a lack of peace in your life. There'll always be a restlessness and anxiety and uncertainty in your life. And here's why. The reason is, look, whether you're a believer or not tonight in this room, I put it to you that every, everyone in their heart of hearts senses that there's a universal courtroom. I put it to you that everyone senses that there's a universal sense, set of laws, that there's a universal decree of what is right and wrong, and that there is a universal judge called God. Now, some of you are going to say, are you serious? I'm a modern person. I'm a sophisticated person. I don't, I don't believe in all of that religious stuff. In fact, your morals as a preacher, Sam, are the very things that's gotten this world into trouble. Now, your morals and your biblical teachings are the very thing that, you know, religion's just guilted people into submission for the rest of their life. And you know what? As a preacher, I'm going to be the first one to put my hand up and say, the church has stuffed this up. Churches still stuff this up. Where preachers use guilt and use the morals and the standards of God to lord it over their congregations and to manipulate them into what they believe to be their behavioral norms. But what I want to get at back to it here is that if you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm a modern person, the modern person says, are we not at the stage where we work out what's right and wrong for ourselves? Aren't all morals relative? And that's more than fine for you to think that. It's good. I welcome that. But I want you to think about this for a minute. That it's intellectually incongruent, it's, it's logically in opposition to declare that there is no universal right or wrong and in the same breath be upset at, I don't know, oppressive governments in the world. It's intellectually incongruent to say that there's no universal rights or wrongs and to look at another culture that slaughters young children and point the finger at them and say that that's wrong. And here's why, because if there is no universal courtroom and there is no universal judge, then what is the difference between putting a chainsaw through a tree or a chainsaw through a human being? If that, if that's, that shouldn't be a shocking statement to you if that's the position that you hold, because they are both made up of the same base elements scientifically, carbon. But if there is no universal right or wrong see you have no right to be moved or even outraged by these sorts of issues but why are we and i put it to you tonight it's because you already live out of a belief whether you believe in jesus or not that there is some sort of absolute moral law somewhere you might not acknowledge it as god's but you live by it you have to live by it and so that's where deep down, that's what starts to cause those feelings of guilt for us in life. It's not necessarily the preachers and some of their techniques. That it's, it's deep down. I've heard someone explain that your guilt is like an underwater oil leak. <laughs> you don't know where it's coming from, but on the surface, the water just smells foul. And so people find it hard to, 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 to pinpoint it. And so that's the problem with guilt. And the only way to start to deal with guilt is to be asking yourself, well, ought I feel guilty in the first place? Should I be feeling guilty? Is the guilt that I feel a true guilt or is it a false guilt? And if so, like, how do I even determine whether or not 
it's true or false guilt. What standard must I measure my feelings against? And so some person that's really struggling with it validly goes to a psychologist or they go to a counsellor and they say to the psychologist, Doc, you know, by which standard must I measure this feeling of guilt? And I bet your bottom dollar, almost all of them will say to you, that's not my place to tell you that. You see, because the minute that a, a psychologist moves out of the realm of of science into telling you the standards of what is right or wrong, that's into the realm of religion, the realm of morality. And so they will always say, that's not my standard. Psychology, I can help you understand why you're feeling guilty. I can help you try and pinpoint the reasons, the oil link leak for why you're feeling guilty, but I can't judge the basis for your feelings of guilt. I can't judge the fact of your guilt. And so most um, everyday psychological approaches is hundreds of them you know i'm not qualified to debrief all of those when i start my postdoctorate work in philadelphia about it all danielle would it be <laughs> but most of them and i'm sure danielle can give us some insight yeah you know, they, they, what they're really going to say is all psychology can do is is help you adjust your your expectations around why or why not you should be feeling guilty and they'll say that you, they won't say to you that the problem is that you've transgressed a universal moral law. <laughs> and I'm going to say, how's that working for you? How's it working for society? We spend hundreds and thousands of dollars trying to work through these sorts of issues. You know, look, at least Shakespeare was w- willing to be real with it, right? Remember Lady Macbeth? Always washing her hands because she'd murdered, murdered someone. And, and, and what, what, is she, what is she always saying? That, that, that damn spot, out, out that damn spot. And it drove her crazy because she could find no freedom from the fact of her guilt, of the, of the moral transgression, the universe. At least Shakespeare is willing to be real about it. And let's us be real for a second here. Myself, yourself included. We've all got them, haven't we? Hasn't every one of us in the room tonight got a damn spot? Even as Christians? It's another great challenge that I find in pastoral ministry. I'm trying to, we're always trying to help Christians wash their hands. Because they're always searching for the freedom from the underlying guilt and the the promise and the wonder of this passage tonight guys is that christianity has a way to be free from that damn spot which is unparalleled and here's the first reason why the the cross the cross frees you from guilt objectively you see unlike psychology unlike the rest of the world the bible dares to say there is an objective guilt there is a universal moral law there's a universal standard um Let's go back to Mike Ross for a second, season finale. I hope I'm not spoiling it for anyone, but I may or may not have downloaded it direct from the US, so there's my damn spot for you tonight. <laughs> um, the, the, whole, the whole series, as I said, has been um, the tension of his feelings of guilt that he's practicing law when he shouldn't, but the series finale comes up in a situation in which a lawyer um, finally corners Mike and his boss Harvey and says that he's going to take Mike to the bar 
which is the governing body of lawyers. And see, it's there that Mike's heart sinks and he is terrified because for all of his talent and for all of his ability and for all the cases that he's already won as a fake fraudulent lawyer, and he's a great lawyer at that, for all the things that he's done, Mike finally realizes that the real problem with his guilt is not his talent or his abilities. His real problem with his guilt is that he's got a problem with his underlying record. That if there comes a day when someone checks the record at the bar, is this guy accepted in our profession? There will be no name there that says my cross. And the Bible dares to say that every person is like my cross. That no matter how talented you are, no matter how good you are, no no matter how well you do all this stuff, uh, the, the guilt that you can feel is sourced in an underlying problem with your record. doesn't matter how talented you are. That the objective guilt from a biblical framework is the sense that you have a record that is not acceptable before the ultimate judge. Romans 3 says it, doesn't it? That we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And, and you know what? That's a verse that people don't like to say in church all that much. You know, it can sound a bit, as Graham would say, dirgy. You know, it sounds... I don't know what dirgy means yet, but it just sounds like it should, Right? Romans 3 is a dirgy verse, okay? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. What a wonderful, inspirational message for you to come to church tonight. It's dirgy. (laughs) But here's what Romans 3 is simply saying. Romans 3 is the praise of the entire Bible. Romans 3 is, is the heading, the executive summary of the entire Bible, which is simply this. The executive summary of the Bible is, there is a God and you're not it. There is a God and you're not it. And we fall short of the record that he expects and he he demands from his beautiful and his perfect law as the ultimate judge. And so in other words, the objective guilt of the Bible is this, that you and I know deep down. That's this anxiety that we have. This is the lack of peace with God, verse verse 1. The lack of peace that we have with God is a Mike Ross lack of peace with God. That is talented. This is religion, by the way. As talented as we are, as gifted as we are, as well attended to church we are, as professional looking we are as a Christian, even to the extent that we fulfill the job as a Christian, we know that before the ultimate judge and the ultimate bar, we have no record. That outside of Jesus Christ, you and I are frauds. There's, there's, there's nothing there. And that's what causes the anxiety and the stress now, the modern person's going, come on. Surely you don't believe that. That's dirgy. <laughs> I live a good life. I try and do good things. I help the poor. I give money to charity. In fact, you think I'm a good person? You should see my nan. She's an angel. She does all sorts of stuff. She's never said a swear word in all of her life. And she's a good lady. You're telling me that God won't accept that? And the problem is, Not that God won't accept that. The problem is that God can't accept that. And here's why. Because the Bible says that our God is a good God. In fact, it goes deeper than that. It says our God is a holy God. It says our God is a perfect God. And so the great challenge, the great problem is in this good God and this perfect God and this right judge, here's why it's a problem. Judges need to treat guilt objectively, not subjectively. The, the, their treatment of guilt must be on the basis of objective law. Let's have an let's, example. 
Imagine you go down to the magistrate's court in North Sydney on the Pacific Highway there. And you see, uh, the, the, you see the magistrate there and they're dressed up all in their wig. And before the, the magistrate, there's a sentencing hearing and a convicted rapist is brought before the magistrate for sentencing. And the magistrate says, you know what? I'm feeling in a good and a loving mood today. You know what? Don't worry about it. How would you respond? Is that good and fair? No, that, that's an outrage. You're saying, I want justice. Society wants justice for all of this. And so my question for you tonight is, if you're the sort of person that says, you know, come on, God's just, look, he can be a good and a loving judge. And while this Jesus dying on the cross stuff, you know, why do you have to do that? You know, can't, can't everyone come? Can't he just say, forget it? Look, if you demand that level of standard and upholding objective guilt from the judge down in North Sydney, you know, why, why wouldn't you expect that of the, of the judge of the universe? And here's our problem because we, I put it to you, you want a good and a fair judge. You want a judge that is going to deal with injustice. You want a judge that is going to deal with those that have caused you all sorts of pain and the world all sorts of pain. You want a judge that will deal with that and yet at the same time we have to acknowledge our own, let me use the legal term, contributory negligence. <laughs> You know, anyone who's a Christian realizes that look, I, I may not be the perpetrator of some of the most heinous evil and suffering in the world, but if I'm dragged before the judge, there, there's some contributory negligence. The pride, the self-interest, the way that I've treated and hurt it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not free from the ultimate judgment of this society. And so that's our problem. And here's his problem because his, we're his children and his precious creation and they've broken the law. And his law is good and perfect on one side and he loves his children dearly on the other. And the judge is in a bind because he's in the middle of the courtroom and something has to give either way that his law is good and perfect. There must be consequences for the breaking of that. And that's where we see verse 6. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And in a radical twist to the story, we see that the ultimate good and great judge of the universe fixes the problem by not sending his kids into the punishment, but by sending his own son at the cross. And there Jesus, Jesus, we see in the, the, the scriptures, he lives the life that we could never live, the perfect life, the law-fulfilling life. He lives that for us, but he also dies the death that we deserve and he dies in our place. And that's where John Stott says that the essence of sin is not necessarily good deeds or bad deeds. It's the person substituting themselves for God. And the essence of salvation being right with God is God sacrificing himself, substituting himself for the person. Can you see how the, the wonderful cross frees you from guilt objectively? He, he, he paid the punishment. He, he paid for it all. And so that's what leads us to the last point tonight. Not only, uh, it not only frees you from the fact of guilt, but it also frees you from the feeling of guilt. And here's how you're freed from the feeling of guilt. Maybe you're interested in that tonight. Maybe you're a person that's still washing your hands. Maybe there's a damned spot in your life tonight. You need healing from the feeling of guilt. Verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have a peace with God. 
You see that we're justified. This is one of these places in where the English word often matches the Greek word. It's really, it's really similar. You see, to justify means not to change something, but to change your view of something. To, to, be, to justify is not to change something, to change your view of it. Example. It's a little, little primary school kid walking across uh, the school playground. Uh, in walks the principal. He's also walking across the school playground. He looks out of his peripheral vision and all he can see is Johnny coward punching. I was going to say king hit. Coward punching one of the other students, knocking him straight out. The student goes out cold. Principal says, Johnny, in my office now. Kid walks across. He's absolutely terrified. He's shaking. The principal is fuming. Uh, sits him down. Johnny, that's it. Year suspension. You're done. I saw exactly what you did. And, and poor Johnny's going, but, but, sir, but I don't want to hear it. But, but, sir, but sir, I don't want to hear it. A year, you're out of here. And then the principal, judge, relents. He says, I'll give you, I'll give you one shot. What do you want to say? He said, but, but, sir, Bobby was about to pull out a gun and shoot the other kid. What do you think the principal does? Oh, Johnny... You're a hero. I <laughs> forget the suspension. I'll oh, come here, my son. We're going to get you up at assembly and we're going to give you a blue ribbon and we're going to give you one of those wristbands that you're not supposed to have at the school at the moment. And um, it, w- w- oh, you are, You're a hero. Now, question class. <laughs> um, did Johnny's behaviour change? Was the past changed? No. What changed? The view of the behaviour changed. In other words, his behavior was justified. I never fully got this. When I, justification, it's like all the shun words, salvation, justification, sanctification. If I ever see a shun word in the Bible, I just glaze over it. And I never thought about the word justification. You have been justified. And what that means for you tonight if you're the sort of person that's, that's standing there be, before God saying, I've got all this junk, I've got all this past, I've got all this crap in my life, I've got all this messed up, broken mess in my life, I've got all these, I've got all these oil leaks in my life that I don't even know where the heck they're coming from, but they stink. <laughs> and I don't know how I'm ever going to fix all of that junk in my past. Is God asking you to change your behavior? No. Because in Jesus Christ, God's view of your behavior has been changed. You have been justified. Come, come here. This is how, you want to know how to get justified? Here's how you get justified. You accept Jesus as your advocate. There's a fascinating verse and a fascinating word, by the way. I've kept a legal theme all night. What wonderful discipline. You'll see that in a second. Fascinating verse in, in 1 John 2. It says, but if anybody does sin, I find that very comforting in the Bible particularly as a pastor, you know, I'm not perfect. If anybody does sin, it's it's a great great future. It sort of sets us up well. It's real about what Christianity is about. If anybody does sin, you you need to remember this, says 1 John 2. We have an advocate who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what we've just talked about. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the entire world. Advocate is a fascinating word, isn't it? It's used in legal terms almost in exactly the same way today. You know, what is an advocate? Uh, When you see today an advocate in court, an advocate is your defense attorney. 
We've got an advocate. You know, often people, they work for free, lawyers working for free for underprivileged people. They're, what are they doing? They're advocating for the person. And so here's the thing. You know, what's your relationship to your defense lawyer to you? It's everything to you, your relationship to them. You know, if, you, if, if, if John Doe, your defense lawyer, looks good, you look good. If John Doe, your defense lawyer, looks bad, you look bad. <laughs> and in a sense, in a courtroom, you're lost in your advocate. Are you with me? <laughs> If John Doe's seen, seen, you're seen. If John Doe talks, you're talking. <laughs> if John Doe is successful, that success is placed upon you. If John Doe fails, that failure ultimately lands upon you. And so the Bible tells us that in the ultimate courtroom, before the judgment of God, Jesus Christ stands and he represents you. And guess what? He stands there and he advocates for you with an infallible, watertight case. And here's how it goes, because for, for years I thought he was up there like one of these flashy lawyers, you know, with a golden tooth and a double-breasted silver suit. And all the good words that you see in all the great 1980s LA Law style law shows, you know, before he had slick suits. You know, and they, they were up there saying, oh, your honour, great judge, this is my client Sam. And look, has he been bad? Has he been naughty? Yes, of course. Your Honour, but he's had a bad week. And Your Honour, you must see his record. He's had a broken life. He's had a messed up life. And so, Your, your Honour, you're a good judge. And you're a fair judge. And so I plead with you for mercy for my client. And surely, just give him one more chance this time, this week, will you? Now, that, that was... It's never sufficient for me because knowing my life and my damn spots, I'm thinking, how, A, you know, how can Jesus handle wearing the suit that much? And, and how, how, how can, can Jesus keep keeping it, this, this going for this, this long? How can he keep this up all the time when it comes to my life and the sin in my life? And then I really got what an advocate was. You see, a good defense lawyer, they don't just arouse sympathy, but they argue the law, Right? He shows the judge, this is the law. He shows the judge, this is the case. And this is the case. He says, here are my brothers and sisters. He says, I went to the cross for them. He says, your honor, judge, I died for them. Judge, I bled for them. And so therefore, have they lied? Yes. Were they selfish? Yes. Were they bitter? Yes. Could they have loved you more? Yes. Fully admit that you can see in your records before you judge. But I have paid. I have paid. It's the law. And it's a just law, judge. And your law says that the only way to pay these debts is through the death and blood. Well, here it is. Here is my body. And here is my blood. And so I appeal to you, judge, that you are a good judge and you are a just ju judge. And I have made full payment and your own justice says you cannot take the same payment for the same debt. And so therefore, judge, I ask for acquittal for my client. In fact, I don't ask for mercy. I demand justice. It's watertight. Father, I do not ask for mercy for my clients. I ask for justice, says the advocate. 
Oh, I guess in closing, how might that free you from the oil leaks of guilt in your life this week? Speaking practically, you are freed from the emotional ramifications of guilt to the extent that you're willing to admit your guilt. That's what a Christian is. But look at the example of your advocate on the cross. Look at the example of your advocate in cross. Verse 1 is saying you are justified. Verse 1 is saying God loves you right now, this minute if you are in him. He loves you exactly the same than when he will in five billion years from now. What verse 1 says is that judgment day means nothing to those that are in Christ. All the hard work has been done on the cross. The judgment stuff, that's just a bit of a formality as we move through the entrance gates. But what it means for you practically tonight, friend, brother, sister, look, can't you see, Christian, that if you are feeling guilty for past sin in your life tonight, if you're feeling guilty for past sin, you don't need to repent of that sin. What you need to repent of tonight is the reason why you think that you should still feel guilty for that sin. You need to repent of the reason why you think that that has not been justified. You are treating the work of Christ like a bit of butter on toast that you just can't spread to the edges. And so I speak to people tonight on either sides of the cross. Remember last week, there's no neutrality in the cross. It's, it's either way. And I speak to those tonight where Jesus Christ isn't your advocate. And I'm so glad that you're with us. We always have people like this any point in time at Northside who are checking out Christianity. And I just look, I just got to be real with you tonight. Look, are you willing intellectually to admit that deep in your heart you sense that there's an ultimate courtroom? Are you willing to admit that there are some logical inconsistencies? (laughs) Have you caught yourself believing in moral laws that you dare to say don't really exist? In moral rights and wrongs for which you base the very foundation of your life, surely you have seen or maybe you've even experienced the pain and the injustice and the evil of this world. I put it to you, you want a God that is a good and a just judge like this. And so you want a God that is like this, trust me. But what you need, though, before that judge is an advocate. Do you know him tonight? Verse 1 says, by faith you have been justified. Jesus Christ is not asking you to get your mess together tonight. Justification was never about changing a behavior. If you have faith in him, God's view of that behavior is changed in an instant. Guys, I also talk to those that do have Jesus as your advocate. And the funny thing is, you keep washing your hands. I know you because you're my brothers and sisters and it's my job as your pastor to keep drumming the gospel into your heads. (laughs) That damn spot out. It's been done for you. The real work, the cleansing work, the real work that that needs to be done. God doesn't need to do any more work. The, The cross was universal. He's done his bit, which means the only work that is left tonight, if you're still feeling guilty, is that the work that is left on your part, the work that is left for every Christian, as the hymn says, is I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. It's your job as a Christian. If, you, if you're not feeling that dynamism and the freedom and that wonder away from guilt tonight, it's your job to survey the cross. It's your job to stop standing at the lookout and looking at the Grand Canyon and put a backpack on and feel it for real in 3D. The cross has set you free 
from guilt. It set everyone free from guilt, from the factual guilt, from the feelings of guilt. And whether or not your life is held victim to the emotional consequences of that tonight, well, that's up to you and him. Let's pray.